Well, Bruce is finally finishing James chapter 1. And so you can find our scripture reading today on page 199 in your pew Bible. And then, you know, I think next week we actually graduate to uh, 1,200. So um, our scripture reading this morning is James 1, uh, 26 to 27. Again, that's on page 199 in your pew Bibles. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you. And thank you for Pastor Bruce, and just thank you for um, your word, and, and, and thank you for the time and the effort that he puts into uh, studying it and packaging it for us in a way that, that um, we can understand and apply. Father, I just pray that, that we would have um, ears to hear, but as he's already uh, preached in previous weeks, that we wouldn't be just hearers of the word, but that we would be doers of it. God, just help us to um, really internalize uh, your word deep in our hearts, bring it to the forefront of our minds, and then help us to walk it out daily uh, before you and before others so that you can receive honor and glory that you so richly deserve. God, we just love you so much. Help us to love you more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to keep your Bibles open there to James chapter 1, and uh, it's our practice here at LifeBridge, if you're fairly new here, to, to preach through books of the Bible, especially in the New Testament, or large chunks of Scripture in the Old Testament, and uh, one reason for that is because we want to understand what the Scripture says in context, and one of the best ways to do that is by preaching through each book of the Bible so that we understand it in context. And so we began this summer by preaching through the book of James, and we're making our way through the book of James, going verse by verse, and we are, as Kevin said, at the end of chapter 1 here finally. And uh, I believe this is lesson number 9, and I will say that the rest of the chapters, there's five chapters in James, uh, will go a little more quickly we won't spend quite as long in each chapter as we have in, here in chapter 1. But James is really setting the tone. He's setting the foundation here in chapter 1 for the rest of the book. And so that's why we've taken a little bit more time. So with that in mind, and with your Bibles open to James chapter 1, and with the focus here on verses 26 and 27, let me ask you this question. Are you religious? And how religious are you? Do you even consider yourself to be a religious person? Now, that, that's not a trick question. In fact, I would venture to say that most of you, if not all of you, you are actually here this morning in a worship service because of the very fact that you are religious. And so the question is not really whether or not you are religious. The, the more important question here is whether or not your religion is acceptable and pleasing to God. 
Or is your religion defiled and therefore rejected by God? You see, the reality is not all religion is acceptable to our holy God. In fact, there is some religions that is rejected by God. And that may shock many religious people who can't imagine that their, quote, religious efforts are not enough to please God. And so what James happens to say at this, in this little paragraph at the end of chapter 1 here, let me tell you, is immensely important to all of us here this morning. Because James is telling us what kind of religion is acceptable to God? What kind of religion is pleasing to our God? And what we're going to see here in these two verses is that true religion, what James calls pure and undefiled religion that is acceptable and pleasing to God is this, and it's in your notes coming up on the screen. True religion acceptable to God is real faith, expressing itself in real life. Now, one of the things that is evident in this paragraph, these two verses, is that the words religious and religion are not bad words. James actually uses these words three different times in these two verses. But we need to understand what he means by these words, because many of us, if not all of us, we have our own ideas especially in our day and age, of what religion is and what religious means. In fact, when most people hear the word religion, they tend to think of religious rules, religious regulations, of a belief system, or of a religion here in our world. And so it's popular even for people to say, perhaps you've heard this before, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. Now, who knows what they mean by spiritual? That can mean all sorts of things to various people when they say that. But what, they, which, what they're inferring is, I'm not religious because I don't want to be associated with that particular religion. Even as Christians, we, we tend to emphasize that Christianity is a relationship and not a religion. And what we mean, of course, is that Christianity is not a man-centered, works-based, self-improvement system of religious rules and regulations. Rather, Christianity is a relationship with Jesus Christ, and that is all certainly true. However, here in the book of James, in context here, religious refers simply to this outward expression of religion. And the religion that James is talking about is Christianity. And so when James uses this term religion, he's talking about a real faith in Jesus Christ that now expresses itself, what he terms as religious, expresses itself in real everyday life. And we know this because of the context in which he writes this. You look here in verses 26 and 27, and James is describing those who have real faith. And in the very next verse, in chapter 2, verse 1, James writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so religion, here in verses 26 and 27, is the same as the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ in the very next verse. And so for James, in his mind, when he's writing this, 
the term religion equals faith. Specifically, faith in Jesus Christ, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And James' whole point here, in what he's getting ready to say, in which he will expand on over the next three chapters, is that if a person says, I have real faith in Christ, but I don't live it out in real life, then James says that person's faith or his religion is worthless. Now, remember who James is writing this letter to. He's writing to Jewish believers, Jewish Christians. And so they consider themselves to be, quote, religious. But some of them, James is concerned about this, that some of them are very self-deceived about the reality of their faith. In fact, they think their faith or their religion They think it's acceptable to God. They think it's pleasing to God. But in reality, James just says, listen, you need to take a check on that because in God's estimation, it's worthless. And so like these Jewish Christians in James' day, we hear this morning, these verses challenge us to do the same. We need to evaluate ourselves. We need to find out if our religion or our faith is worth anything. That is, whether it is valuable before God Almighty. That's important to know. Is our faith genuine in God's eyes? Is our our religion acceptable to God? Or in his estimation, is it worthless? Now, we saw last Sunday that the person whom God blesses is the person who does the word and not just hear the word of God. That's verses 25. So this is true religion, according to James already. And true religion, in James' mind when he's writing this, is the goal. He wants these believers, and us here today even, he wants us to have this true religion, this real faith. And that's how he's defining it. It's the goal. It's living out real faith in real life. But James says, if anyone is here who who thinks he's religious, and yet... He cannot point to any evidence of his faith in real life, in everyday life. James is saying that person is, well, he's rather self-deceived. He needs to check his heart. So how do you then know that you have real faith here this morning? That's a really good question for us to ask ourselves. How can you be sure that your religion, your faith in Jesus Christ, is actually acceptable to God. Well, James gives us three tests here. He doesn't leave us guessing about this. He's now going to tell us. He's going to give us three tests of true religion to help us evaluate if our faith is real or not. Now, let me just say, this is not an exhaustive list of all the tests. There are other ways to gauge. We know that from 1 John. Read the book of 1 John, and it gives you all these tests to see if my faith is real or not. But for James, he hones in on these three things. These things are super important for James. And these three tests of true religion, in fact, are so important that James will actually expand on them in the course of the next three chapters. But for now, he mentions all three here to simply introduce them and to show us what kind of religion is acceptable and pleasing to God. So let's look at these tests. We might even call them signs of true religion or a mark of true religion. We're going to call them tests here. And the first test is controlling your tongue. And we all should just breathe a woo about that one. 
controlling your tongue. Because what James is doing here, he is immediately drawing a straight line between what we believe and what we say. In other words, he is identifying a very critical connection between our heart and our tongue. Look what James says in verse 26. It says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So note the problem here that James is identifying. The issue is not that this person rejects being religious. He actually considers himself to be religious. He claims to be religious while neglecting a very crucial element of what real faith is. And that is controlling your tongue. And James calls this out. So the first test of true religion is this. Does your religion or does your faith in Jesus Christ, does it, does it actually have an impact on what comes out of your mouth? If not... James says your religion or your faith is worthless. So what James is doing here, he's actually comparing an out-of-control tongue to an out-of-control horse, which is what you have when a horse is not bridled. This is a very sober truth for us to contemplate. Not controlling your tongue is a sign that your religion is worthless. In other words, religion that is characterized now by an out-of-control tongue, is worthless. Now, the people, again, that James is writing to, they considered themselves religious. That is, they would say, I believe in Jesus Christ. I have faith in Jesus Christ. But some of them, James is calling out saying, but you also have galloping tongues. And thus, you are deceived about the very true condition of your heart. Now, there are a lot of ways that we sin with our tongues. We're not going to expand on that here in this message because James is going to expand on that later on. But there are many ways that we sin with our tongues. And so the question obviously becomes, is James saying that if you ever sin with your tongue, then you're not religious. You don't have true faith. You're not saved then. And the answer is no, because we're going to learn in James chapter 3 that James says that we actually, all of us here, stumble in many ways with our tongue. So James is not saying that true Christians never stumble with their tongue, but he is saying that if you claim to be a true Christian, then your religion, that is your faith in Jesus Christ, listen, it will have an impact on what comes out of your mouth. As Lehman Strauss put it, a true test of man's religion is not his ability to speak, but rather his ability to bridle his tongue. So here's the point that James is making about bridling our tongues. Notice this in your notes. A controlled tongue displays a changed heart. Therefore, true Christians will have a measure of control over what they say. Now, as we've already seen in the very first message, James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. And James leans heavily on the teachings of Jesus Christ, his half-brother. And specifically, the Sermon on the Mount, as we've already looked at and seen. And, And so Jesus clearly taught that 
what we speak reveals what is in our heart. In fact, when Jesus confronted the Pharisees, Jesus told them in Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 and 34, he says, either make the tree good and its fruit will be good or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. And then he calls them this term that Jesus uses in particular of the Pharisees. He says, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. And there's the principle. In other words, because our speech reveals who we really are, James now says that if our tongues are not controlled, not bridled, then our religion is a sham. It's worthless. It's, it's in vain. It's meaningless. So, so what does it mean now? to use James' terminology, to bridle our tongue. Well, first of all, we we need to notice and understand that James says bridle and not muzzle. And there's a huge difference between the two. James is not telling us to, to muzzle our speech. He's telling us to bridle our tongue. You see, a muzzle just means don't open your mouth, right? Because you can't. It's muzzled. Therefore, you can't talk, you can't say anything. James says, no, 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 that's not the idea here. A bridle, on the other hand, refers to the, it's the idea of control. For example, when you put a bridle on a horse, it's not so that you can make the horse motionless or useless. No, no, it's just the opposite. It's, you put a bridle on the horse so that the horse can still walk, it can still run, it can still work. The difference is with a bridle, the horse is now under control, and therefore the horse becomes useful for you. Without a bridle in the horse's mouth, that horse is, he's now out of control, and he does whatever it feels like doing. And James is saying in the same, one, same way, the tongue of ours is an incredibly powerful part of our bodies. And he's saying if you don't exercise control over your tongue... It will just run out of control like a wild horse. And so immediately what we see here is James is identifying for us that there are really only two different options for the person who who claims to be a Christ follower, who claims to have faith in Jesus Christ. In the vernacular of James, for one who, who considers himself to be religious, there are only two options here. You either control your tongue or you deceive yourself. You see, James has already warned us that if we only listen to God's word and do nothing, we deceive ourselves. And now he adds on top of that, that if we don't keep a tight rein on our speech, we are also deceived. And this time he really pinpoints where the deception occurs. Unlike last time, he says this deception occurs in our heart. Why? Because Jesus identifies that's where it overcomes, the overflow is in our mouth. So James is concerned about this. He's honed in on this. In fact, three different times here in chapter 1, don't be deceived. And in this context, here in these verses, he say, when you speak, you are telling the truth about yourself, regardless of what else you may think about yourself. In other words, James is he's, he's trying to help us understand that the way you you speak to your family, the way you speak to your, your friends, the way you speak at school or at work, the, the way you speak on the ball field or on the basketball court are all indicators of whether or not your faith is real. 
if you're engaging in gossip, if your words are malicious, if your words are cursing, if your words are angry, if your speech is lewd or vulgar, James is saying you need to be careful here. Because in essence, you are showing that your religion, your faith is worthless. James is saying that controlling your tongue is the very first test here of true religion. In fact, did you know that the average person speaks, get the 16,000 words a day? Now, you may, don't, don't think the person sitting next to you speaks a whole lot more. Or maybe a whole lot less. That's just on average. In fact, that's the equivalent of a 64-page book. So the average person every day speaks the equivalent of a 64-page book. And the question is, what does your daily book reveal about your heart, your religion? What does it say about your faith in Jesus Christ? David Platt actually applies this to social media when he writes, and I quote, in a day of text messaging, email, cell phones, Twitter, blogs, Facebook, etc., we need to be careful. We've created an entire culture that says, if you have a thought, then you should immediately share it with the rest of the world. But he says, but follower of Christ, don't buy that line of thinking. Keep a tight rein on your tongue in speaking a way that shows your faith is real, and the core of your heart belongs to God. Remember, a controlled tongue, James, is reminding us here. A bridled tongue, it reveals something about us, that our hearts have been changed by the power of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Test number two is caring for the helpless. Caring for the helpless. Look what James writes in verse 27. It says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Now, it's very clear. James is now, he's identifying for us exactly what that is. And he's going to say two different things about it. We'll hone in on the first one here. And that is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. So, James is saying there's this, again, this this direct link between our faith in Jesus, and this time he connects that to visiting or caring for the helpless. James specifically mentions caring for the orphans and widows, and then he adds this descriptive phrase to it, in their affliction, to describe their state of grief and their need for help. So why, why does James list these two groups of people? Orphans and widows. Well, here it is. Orphans and widows were the most vulnerable people in Jewish society during James' day. And so they represent the the destitute and the defenseless members of society in James' day, and to a large extent that is still true to this day. Now, what's interesting is that throughout Scripture, you see God has a very special care and a heart of compassion specifically for this group of people, for orphans and widows. And while society, even before James' day, in James' day, and even after James' day, while society in which we live in tends to exploit the defenseless, 
we know in Scripture that God protects them. In fact, Psalm 68.5 says that he is a father to the fatherless. That's orphans. It also says he's a defender of widows. We learn in Psalm 146.9 that God watches over them. And according to Deuteronomy 27.19, he actually curses those who deprive that group of people of justice. Because in the Old Testament, that was especially what happened in the exploitation. Therefore, the Lord now commanded his people to follow him and to show kindness to the most, most vulnerable people in society and to do so as an expression of their faith in God and even their worship of God. We see this in the Old Testament. You go to the book of Isaiah. And there in the very first chapter of Isaiah, the people there, that is God's people, the Israelites, were, they were offering their sacrifices. They, they were actually carrying out all the things that God had told them to do in the temple. And yet, it was not acceptable to God. Remember I said not all religion is acceptable to God? Here's one example where it's not. And it has to do with his own people. And so God... We learn he despised their worship. You say, why? Why would God despise the worship of his people? And Isaiah identifies that it's because they were not caring specifically for the orphans and widows. God told them in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 13 and 15, look, listen to what it says. Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them, God says. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. What? What's God talking about there? Well, you read on down in the chapter, and we see... God says in verses 16 and 17, he now calls them to do something. He says, wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil, learn to do what is good, pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And so this caring for the helpless, orphans and widows, It doesn't stop just right here in the Old Testament. James picks up the same theme, the same compassion of God, and he says now to us even today through application, he says, listen, religion that is pure, that is undefiled before God, and it's interesting that he now describes God, God the Father, because God now becomes the Father for the orphan and the widow is this, is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction or in their distress. And this word visit is a powerful word. In fact, in the New Testament, it it describes what God does for his own people. Visit means here to look after or to care for. The idea is, is showing practical concern and compassion for the helpless. And this kind of compassion... It is central to the heart of God, as it should be for God's people as well. 
we read back in the Old Testament, Moses told God's people in Deuteronomy chapter 10, 17 through 19, he said, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awesome God, showing no partiality, taking no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the resident alien, giving him food and clothing. You are also to love the resident aliens, since you were resident aliens yourselves in the land of Egypt. Nowhere is this care for the helpless seen more clearly than when we actually help someone who can never repay you. And most often, that's going to be an orphan or a widow. So caring for the helpless. When we do that, it actually does, we're, we're doing two things simultaneously. We are actually imitating God the Father because this is what God the Father does. And we are also demonstrating his grace in the gospel because we have received this ourselves in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And James now says that this kind of religion is what is acceptable to God. We might say it this way when it comes to caring for the helpless. Notice it coming up on the screen. True religion that is acceptable for God the Father cares for those who cannot care for themselves. Why? Well, God is a defender. God is a sustainer. He's a provider for the helpless. And get this, God does that and shows that most often through his people. He did it in the Old Testament through his people. He does it. In the New Testament, through his people, primarily through the church. We find this in Acts chapter 6, when the very first organized ministry in the early church was, believe it or not, food assistance for the widows in the church. Widows who were in need in the church. And this came about at a time when there was no life insurance, a husband could leave to a widow, nor were there any government programs in that day and age to provide for those widows who were unable to provide for themselves. And in fact, this is why you read later on in the New Testament, is why Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5 to care for widows in the church who had no family to care for themselves. Now, now first of all, Paul puts the responsibility on a widow's family to care for themselves. And if they're not, you need to confront them about it. This is your job. This is your responsibility. But when a widow doesn't have any family, it becomes the church's responsibility to do so. We also know that, that Paul took up special offerings. We know this to be the case when he took up a special offering for, for needy saints during a famine. You read about that in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. So this is the heart of God for those who are marginalized, who, who are helpless, who cannot help themselves. Now, what's interesting is to understand the time and day in which James is living. James is living, or was living, in a pre-Christian period of time. And James is one of the first books ever written early on in the life of the church. And the church has just been birthed in a culture where the value of human life was at an all-time low. Really no different than our culture today. In fact, 300 years before the birth of Christ, Plato said that a poor man who was no longer able to work because of sickness should just be left to die. 
That's what they thought. That was their mindset of the value of life. Infant side. The killing of babies after birth was widely accepted in practice. Seneca, the Roman historian, wrote, We drown children who at birth are weakly and physically impaired. This was not unique just to Rome. Alvin Schmidt writes in his book, How Christianity Changed the World, that during the time of Christ, the priest in Japan maintained that the sick and the needy were odious to their gods and prevented the wealthy from helping them. But Christianity, on the other hand, comes on the scene and it has this wonderful effect of of raising the value of human life. In fact, it was Christianity that introduced the concept that, that life mattered and every single person does too, no matter what condition they are in or how old they might be. Alvin Schmidt, again, he writes, Before the birth of Christ, the spirit towards sickness and misfortune was not one of compassion, and the credit of ministering to human suffering on an extended scale belongs to Christianity. Which is why you read in church history why so many in two, three, four hundred years ago, why so many ministries flourished and came out of the church, especially for orphans. And widows. You've heard names like George Mueller and the like. We don't have time to give examples of that. This is one reason why our own church here at LifeBridge, why we support missionaries like, like the Grahams in South Africa, who, whose primary ministry is to orphans with their children resiliency project. Why? Because it's a ministry of the of the compassion of God, and we have a part in that. When you give your money to Faith Promise Giving that helps support that ministry in South Africa to these kids, these orphans that cannot care for themselves. It's why, even here in our own church also, why we have a benevolence ministry. And so through your giving in our annual Christmas offering, we are able to help people in our church as well as outside of our church in our community with food and financial assistance. And over the last few years, we've helped numerous people. And as our economy is where it's at, I can only imagine it's going to increase here in the next year or two of the needs. And it's an opportunity for our church to show the Christ, to show the love and heart and compassion of Christ to those who are in need. And in fact, because of your generosity, we just recently gave $5,000 to Resource Health, or formerly known as Re- Rachel House, to help them launch a virtual center to serve women 24-7 who are facing unplanned pregnancies now as an alternative to abortion. We even gave an additional $2,000 for a total amount of $7,000, and that 2000 came from Faith Promise Giving. In fact, I, we just did this here recently, so I want to read you a note that I just received from one of the administrators. She says, this comes from Debbie, Dear LifeBridge, thank you so much for your generous support of Resource Health to share the hope of Christ to men and women facing an unplanned pregnancy. Since the overturning of Roe versus Wade, we've made a strategic shift to intercept abortion-minded individuals before they order abortion pills online. We are working to open our very first 24-7 virtual center 
This center will exist to offer answers and resources to empower the abortion-minded men and women to choose life. We cannot fulfill this ministry without the generosity of churches like you. His for Life, Dave, Dick Dubby. In fact, they're trying to raise, I believe it's $250,000. They have a matching gift for up to $150,000. So our $7,000 is really $14,000 because of, of the matching gift for them to launch this. And it's a, it's a strategic change for them in light of just what's taken place. And this all came about in the last six months as they have sought God's will on how to reach out to these abortion-minded men and women who are facing unplanned pregnancies. Listen, you're giving. We support Rachel House, or Resource Health, I should say, on a monthly basis through your faith promise giving. We do this because we want... We want to show the heart of Christ to these people. They need the gospel, um, a right understanding of who God is, what God's done will affect how God's people care for the helpless. And in whatever manner that you show compassion personally to the helpless, understand, James is saying to us, you are showing through that that your faith is genuine, it is real. The third and final test of true religion is this. It's avoiding worldliness in your life. Avoiding worldliness in your life. Notice again what James writes in verse 27. He says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, from one perspective, the world is simply God's creation, right? We know that from Genesis chapter 1. It's the physical planet in which we live on and we enjoy. But the world is also a system. It's a system of beliefs and morals and values. And when James uses the term world, he's always referring to this aspect of the world, as most writers of the New Testament do. And so the world system, it's a way of feeling, it's a way of thinking, it's a way of living. So what's wrong with the world? Why is true religion, according to James here, keeping oneself unstained from the world? Well, here's the problem with the world. Notice this. The fallen world system, it runs contrary to the ways of God. This world system in which we live in, it operates in opposition to the purpose of God. And so the, you might think of it this way. The world system leaves God out of the picture. The world system excludes God from every facet of life. And because the world system runs contrary to the ways of God, James later on will say, in James chapter 4, verse 4, he says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. This, this is the essence of worldliness from the book of James. It's, in essence, it's basically leaving God out of your life, and instead, it's living now by the world's system of beliefs, morals, and values. Now, as you might know, each society creates its own makeshift morality and values. You learn that as you read through history. And the reason is, is that society, because we're all fallen human beings, sinful human beings, we don't want to submit to God's ways. 
And so what do we do? We invent our own system of what constitutes right and wrong. And that's fluid. It's always fluctuating. And becoming stained by the world is when you start buying into that system and you start living according to that system now. Doing that, you're stained by the world. For example, here's our culture's makeshift morality. This is just a sampling. In our culture, self-identity is about finding the best version of yourself. God says Jesus came to redeem your identity from sin and self by finding it not in yourself but in Jesus Christ. In our culture, anger is reasonable or unreasonable based on how much you have been hurt. You're a victim here. And if someone hurts you in a really big way, then you are justified in retaliation and in anger in God. But God says all selfish anger is sin, and we are to forgive those who do us wrong and even do good to our enemies. Our culture says sex between consenting adults is perfectly natural, and there's no reason to restrict sex within the confines and boundaries of marriage. But God says there are only two options. You either get married or you don't have sex outside of marriage. Our culture says the American dream is all about money and possessions. God says no, money and possessions are a dangerous trap, and they can never make you happy. Our culture says there might be a God out there somewhere, but he's not involved in day-to-day life. Life is what you make of it. But God says whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, it must be done for his glory. Our culture says that the most reliable source of truth out there is you. You're the truth. What you say is the truth. But God says the most reliable source of truth is not you, it is his word. Our culture says that profanity, obscenity, well, it's just the norm in our conversations today. God says it's vile, and he forbids it for believers in Jesus Christ. And so today, Isaiah's lament in Isaiah 5.20, it echoes across our culture where Isaiah says, evil is called good, good, evil, and light is darkness, and darkness is light. That is where we are at now. And so James, he now issues this caution with the world that we need to hear and heed. James says, notice this, Keep yourself unstained from the world. How? By living according to God's word and not according to the system of this world. And so James is super concerned about us being stained by the world or being polluted by the world or being defiled by the world. And so what James is advocating here, listen to me, is a very clear separation from the ways of the world the philosophy of the world, the beliefs and morals of the world, a clear separation from how they feel, think, and live. Now, you know you're in danger of being stained by the world when when it leaves a mark on you, when it leaves its mark on your attitudes, on your desires, when, when your priorities in life, when your, when your values, when your worldview doesn't line up with God's word, mark it down, you're being stained by the world. 
And James says that one of the tests of true religion is this constant, concerted effort to avoid being stained by this world. Now, again, I don't want you to leave here confused about this, so understand something here. God wants you to be in the world. Hope you understand that. So do not go by a cave somewhere and hibernate for the next 40 years until Jesus comes or you die. That is not what James is saying here. God wants us to be in the world. He doesn't want you to be of the world. In other words, God God wants you to enjoy the benefits of this world, the creation of his world, as long as you're not falling in love with the world and not becoming a friend of the world and not being stained by the world. But what happens when that happens? What happens if we get stained by the world? How can we remove the stains of the world? Having real faith or true religion doesn't mean you never get stained, right? Anybody here not been stained by the world? We've all been stained by the world. So obviously James doesn't mean that, that never happens. After all, believers still sin. But real faith means that you deal with those stains as soon as it appears in your life. You say, how? Cleansing your life with confession of sin and receiving the forgiveness of sin that God offers to us through Jesus Christ. You know what it says in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins... God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, for example, my wife and I, we, we like to eat at Jose Peppers quite a bit and because I love their chips and salsa. But it seems the older I get, this happens more frequently, that as I'm eating chips and salsa, I look down and I'm like, I got a blob of salsa right there. And that blob of salsa is going to leave a stain on my shirt. And I really like this shirt. So now I'm worried about this stain. And what do I do? Well, I try to wipe it off, but it leaves a stain. So now what do I do? I'm like, Darla, we can't go to Marshall's. I know you want to go to the home goods store next door and spend money there on our home. But we need to go straight home so that I can get the shout out or the OxyClean. And I can treat this stain before it sets in and ruins my shirt. You've been there, you've done that, you understand it. James, in the same way, he's saying, listen, living out true faith in real life, it means keeping yourself unstained by the world. And as Tony Evans says, as he writes, the good news is that no matter how bad the stain may be, I know a cleaner who takes care of the worst possible stains you will ever have. God specializes in stain removal. Isaiah 1.18 says, come, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, you've been stained. They will be white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool through the forgiveness that God offers to you through his son, Jesus Christ. His life, death, and resurrection. That is the power we have of the stain removal of Jesus Christ. All of this is a reminder of just how much we need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, we need Jesus living in us in order to live out real faith in real life. So understand something here. You and I, we will never control our tongues. 
We will never care for the helpless. We will never keep ourselves unstained by the world in our own power. It's not going to happen. We, we need the power of Jesus Christ in the gospel, living in us and for us and through us. We need Jesus desperately. So I ask, do you know him? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you trusted him for your salvation? Have you asked him to save you from your sins and grant you the gift of eternal life? If not, then I plead with you to cry out to Jesus in repentance of sin and saving faith. If you are saved, then James says to us here this morning that true religion demonstrates the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How? By three things. By controlling our tongue, by caring for the helpless, and by avoiding worldliness in our lives. Let's pray. With your heads bowed, here's a prayer we all need to pray after a message like this. And so as I pray, I invite you to pray. Heavenly Father, without you, I will never live this way. I need you more than I realize. And so God, take control of my tongue. Give me a heart of compassion for the helpless. Help me to avoid the ways of the world so that I might be pleasing to you. I want to have true religion. I want to live out true faith, real faith in real life. And I need your grace. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.